This podcast discusses domestic violence, criminal behavior, murder, and adult themes. While not explicit, listener discretion is advised. Steve Powell couldn't cope. News of his daughter-in-law's disappearance down in Utah had thrown his entire world into disarray. On December 12th of 2009, he wrote this in his digital journal. Last night when I got home, Michael and Alina told me that Josh was freaking out now. Evidently, they found blood in the entryway of his house and are checking that out. Michael and I were tentatively planning to go down to Utah next Friday or Saturday. He wanted us to leave within the hour. I was tired. I'm emotionally drained. I told Michael I could not do that. He said he would go with Alina. Michael and Alina departed for Utah on December 12th. West Valley City Police had their first interaction with Michael five days later when they served their third search warrant at the Sarah Circle house. On the night of December 21st, Michael and Alina were headed back home to Washington when they pulled off of I-84 in Baker City, Oregon. They had stopped just north of the intersection of Elm and Indiana. Something was wrong with Michael's Ford Taurus. Alina called AAA. She wanted to tow all the way to Pendleton, almost 100 miles away. She and her brother had reservations at the Motel 6 there. It was snowing over the Blue Mountains. AAA called a few of the tow shops in the region, but all were either too busy or unwilling to brave the storm. Michael called from Baker City, Oregon, to tell me that his transmission had gone out, that the gears had quit engaging. Fortunately, they were a quarter mile from a motel and were able to secure lodging. Just before 10 a.m. the next morning, Alina called AAA again. She insisted on a tow for herself, her dog, and her brother Michael to Pendleton. The dispatcher warned Alina that was a 97-mile tow. It would result in over-mileage charges. And there were auto shops in Legrand, which was only half the distance. Alina replied she was broke and couldn't afford repairs or the additional charge, but she had to get to Pendleton that day. AAA made it happen. MJ Goss Motors in Legrand sent a driver to Baker City, where he picked up Michael and Alina. Then they rode all the way to Pendleton and dropped Michael's Ford Taurus at Lindell Auto. This is Cold, Episode 15, Fall of the House of Powell. I'm Dave Cauley. Back after this. There are so many aspects to the Susan Powell investigation, it's been hard to get them all into cold. If you want even more exclusive details regarding Susan's story, head over to Wondery.com plus and sign up now for access to bonus content you won't find anywhere else. That's Wondery.com plus. Again, W-O-N-D-E-R-Y dot com slash P-L-U-S to hear three bonus episodes you won't get anywhere else.
I spent my college days throwing perfect passes and trash-talking BYU. And I spent my college career smashing Utah Utes' faces into the mud. I'm Jason Buck. And I'm Scott Mitchell. After our careers in the NFL, we still talk trash. But mostly to each other on our podcast, Rivals. We talk all things football, college, and NFL. A little bit about life and growing up Rivals. Download it each week wherever you get your podcasts or on the KSL Sports app. Go Cougs! And go Utes! Michael was in many ways the brightest of the Powell children. When he was 18, he flew to Europe alone to spend several months backpacking. At the time, in June of 2000, Steve wrote this about his youngest son. Michael was always quiet, happy, and contemplative as a child. He was the complete opposite of a hyperactive child, and he still is that way. There is always something very deep going on behind those eyes. Two years later, in October of 2002, Michael enlisted in the U.S. Army. He trained in human intelligence, learned Korean at the Defense Language Institute, and was eventually stationed at Menwith Hill in England, a hub in the United States Electronic Surveillance Network. Michael's next duty station was in Seoul, South Korea. In a later letter... Steve told Michael how that military service had affected him. I worried about you throughout your military career, and other parents' losses were felt more deeply because I knew I was exposed to the possibility of similar loss. Michael received an honorable discharge from the Army in 2007. The next year, he ran for a seat in the Washington legislature. He prevailed in the primary but failed to win the general election. I worried when you ran for state legislature that the hiatus might derail your academic career. Michael received a two-year degree in intelligence operations from Cochise College in Arizona before graduating from the University of Washington with a four-year degree in international studies in 2009. The University of Minnesota accepted Michael into a Ph.D. program in early 2010. That September, Michael bought a condo at 431 South 7th Street in Minneapolis he moved away from Washington for good. Now I worry that you won't get the respect you deserve or that you'll work so long and hard that you'll burn out before you reach your goal. I worry and wonder about how you'll best use your credentials once you have them. Michael's move to Minnesota kept him away from the eyes of police until August of 2011. During Operation Tsunami, police repeatedly overheard Josh talking to Michael on the wiretap. Detective Ellis Maxwell wouldn't tell me what they discussed, but court records show Michael often warned his brother police were likely eavesdropping. They would move their conversations to encrypted emails. We later discovered that he was using a voice over IP phone number to check his voicemail. So, you know, this is, it wasn't uncommon for him to uh, engage in conversation through you know, encrypting an email or using a voice over IP phone number. VOIP calls travel over the Internet. Like emails, they can be encrypted. And he was doing this even, you know, clear back, you know, the day before Susan went missing, in the day of. At the start of September of 2011, West Valley police worked with the DEA and federal prosecutors to subpoena Michael's cell phone records surrounding the time of Susan's disappearance. Those records showed Michael typically made and received several calls a day. 
But after getting a spam call on Friday, December 4th of 2009, his phone went dark. There were no calls on December 5th or 6th. On the afternoon of December 7th, the day of Susan's disappearance, Michael checked his voicemail right around the same time Josh was coming off the Pony Express trail. Then his phone went dark again until the afternoon of December 12th of 2009, as he was driving to Utah with Alina. This change in behavior seemed curious. Then, police found Michael's car in Pendleton. Made him very suspicious. And, you know, that led to us following up with him more and and going to Minneapolis and trying to talk to him. A detective and lieutenant flew to Minneapolis in October of 2011 to interview Michael. They caught him by surprise. Warrant affidavits later filed in court revealed the police asked Michael about the whereabouts of his Ford Taurus. Michael said the car had broken down in Pendleton a while back. He didn't volunteer that it had actually broken down nearly 100 miles away in Baker City, or that he had sold it for just 100 bucks in the apparent hope it would be destroyed. He wouldn't answer any questions, and he straight told him, like, even if he thought that his brother was involved, he wouldn't tell us anything. The lieutenant warned Michael that could be viewed as obstructing the investigation. It could put his Ph.D. program at risk. Worse yet, Michael might face charges himself. This appeared to rattle Michael. Two months later, he went to the website for a satellite imaging company in Colorado called Apollo Mapping. He entered his name, phone number, and email address into a contact form, along with the message, I am looking for an aerial photo of Pendleton, Oregon, taken in October 2011 or later. The company responded saying its most recent image available dated back to August. Michael said that wasn't recent enough. It had to be October or later. It is interesting that they went 100 miles north to dispose of it, and then him being concerned why it wasn't smashed and looking for satellite imagery. Michael's car hadn't yielded the break Ellis had hoped it would. Once the Taurus was back in Utah, detectives tore out the trunk carpet and found hair. Again, we thought it was a huge break. It seemed to suggest Michael might have transported Susan's body in the trunk of his car, then trashed the car to get rid of the evidence. Police sent the hair and swabs from around the trunk to Utah's state crime lab. When that was done and we had a full DNA profile, the lab called me and I went down and and sat with them and I I had butterflies. Um, I was excited, I was nervous, but then again, I was skeptical. I mean, again, because, you know, is this gonna be another swift kick in the guts? And at the end of the day, it was. It, It wasn't her profile. The hair had not come from Susan. That setback didn't quell suspicion though about Michael. In November of 2011, West Valley Police obtained federal warrants for pen register and trap and trace devices on Josh and Michael's internet connections. That allowed them to see the IP addresses related to Josh and Michael's online activities. Detectives reading through Steve Powell's digital journals started to notice some interesting entries regarding Josh and Michael. 
In one dated January 4th of 2010, Steve talked about Josh and Michael's plan to drive a U-Haul to Utah so Josh could empty out the Sarah Circle house. He is concerned that when he goes to Utah, the press will begin hounding him again. He is also worried that the police will harass him and maybe arrest him. While the Powell brothers were in Utah, Josh went to the office of attorney Thomas E. Nelson in Salt Lake City. He was there to make changes to the trust he and Susan had formed 11 months earlier. He had been talking about his life insurance, as he had hinted at before, with direct reference to his own demise. Josh had hinted at his own suicide two years before it happened. Susan had been missing for barely a month, but Josh was already obsessed with keeping her parents away from the boys. He asked his dad to serve as Charlie and Braden's surrogate parent if he were to be arrested or worse. I told him I did not know if I was up to the responsibility and told him to work hard to make sure he is exonerated so that the kids will have their father. In its original form, the trust called for Chuck Cox and Michael Powell to serve as co-trustees in the event both Josh and Susan were incapacitated. He wants us to keep them active in the church so that I will have the local LDS congregation behind his decision to give me custody should something happen to him. If I am taking the kids to church, they will not mobilize their resources against me, in his mind. On that day, just one month after Susan's disappearance, Josh made an amendment to the trust, removing Chuck Cox. Under the amendment, Michael would become the sole trustee if something were to happen to Josh. The change required both Josh and Susan's signatures, but Josh signed for Susan using the power of attorney she had granted him. Fast forward to the start of October of 2011. Steve had just been arrested and the kids seized by the state of Washington. Josh immediately met with a New York life agent in Tacoma and signed paperwork changing the beneficiaries on his life insurance. He removed the trust that he had formed with Susan and in its place listed Michael and Alina in a 50-50 split. It is part of a paper trail to show my intentions. You, Alina, John, and Dad are my intended beneficiaries according to my forms. On December 3rd of 2011, Josh changed the distribution again. He set the payout to 93% for Michael, 4% for Alina, and 3% for his brother John. He sent Michael this handwritten letter explaining the changes. I know you don't want the money, so I am trusting that you will use it for my sons if the need were to arise. I have decided that Alina may not be financially responsible enough for that duty. Plus, if she were taking care of my sons, you would need to provide the financial oversight. Josh called Alina the best possible caretaker for Charlie and Braden, aside from himself. I am not forwarding these forms to Alina or John because I don't want them to feel bad for having such a small share. I just don't want them to squander the money. John will totally understand, I'm sure. I obviously trust Alina, but she needs to learn job skills. She'll learn them better by having less money available to her. Michael was the only person Josh trusted. I love you all equally, even if these percentages aren't equal. Josh's letter to Michael came as he was in the middle of that custody fight with Susan's parents. It was early December, and he still believed he would prevail. My attorney is very positive about the situation. He feels my rights are being severely trampled so it is only a matter of time before we can start to force some moves. Yet, Josh didn't know police had found those incestuous cartoon images on his computer. Then, on the day after that fateful court hearing, on February 1st of 2012, 
Josh mailed Michael keys to his storage unit and several letters granting his brother full ownership of his personal property. That included his computers and hard drives, which were still in the hands of police. I specifically grant you full ownership and rights to negotiate and obtain my property from the police department when the time comes. There was more. I irrevocably grant you full ownership and rights in all of my intellectual property to include, but not limited to, my name and likeness, my story, my software, websites and databases, which I have created. Three days later, Josh did the unthinkable. On February 13th of 2012, as Susan's family was burying Charlie and Braden at the Woodbine Cemetery, Steve Powell filed a notice to law enforcement authorities with the Pierce County Superior Court. It notified West Valley Police, the FBI, and any Utah law enforcement that Steve was asserting his right to remain silent about Susan. The very next day, on Valentine's Day, Michael and Alina contacted New York Life to lay claim to their brother's life insurance. Michael and Alina's play for Josh's life insurance put New York Life in a difficult spot. If the company paid out on Josh's policy to his siblings, it would likely face a lawsuit from Susan's family. Because Susan wasn't dead in the eyes of the law, she could arguably still come forward and assert a claim on the money through the trust. On the other hand, if New York Life denied Michael and Alina's claims, the Powells were likely to sue. So on March 3rd of 2012, New York Life filed what's known as an interpleader lawsuit. It essentially asked the federal court in Tacoma to decide what should happen with the money. The lawsuit called into question all of the changes Josh had made to his beneficiaries due to concerns about his mental state. Everyone got served. Steve, Terry, John, Michael, Alina, Chuck, Judy, Susan's estate, the trust, and on and on. Beneficial Life, which also held a half-million-dollar policy in Josh's name, joined in on the suit as well. The RCFL continued to uncover clues about Michael, like this Steve Powell digital journal entry from April 22nd of 2010. This evening, Josh was recording his voice on the version of Susan with the sun-white hair I arranged for him, where the chorus goes, Susan with the starlight, Susan with the moonlight, Susan with the sun-white hair. Michael substituted Susan with the nappy, Susan with the mangy, Susan with the unkempt hair. He had me laughing so hard, I had to have him leave my studio. The RCFL also found pictures on that hard drive police had seized from Josh's safe deposit box. Josh had snapped the photos during a drive between West Valley and Puyallup in May of 2010. For some reason, he had stopped along I-84 a bit north of Ontario, Oregon, and short of Farewell Bend. West Valley detectives identified the exact spot and went to search alongside the freeway on May 2nd of 2012. They didn't find anything. Why Josh shot that picture remains a mystery. About a month after the fire, police went back to the U.S. District Court to ask for a search warrant, this time targeting Michael's University of Minnesota internet traffic. 
The warrant sought all emails sent and received by Michael since August 16th of 2011, the first day of the wiretap from Operation Tsunami. Meantime, in Washington, Steve's defense team tried to convince Pierce County Superior Court Judge Ronald Culpepper that West Valley's search of Steve's home had been illegal. They wanted all of the evidence tossed. This is an exploratory search. Uh, in my judgment, this is a fishing expedition under the guise of searching for journals that were written over 12 years ago. But of course, it was Steve himself who had gone on national television the prior summer to declare the journal's important evidence in the case. The youngest of the Powell children, Alina, defended her father. I do believe that he should be released from jail, and I believe that based on the conduct of the police, that there has been a lot of illegal hanky-panky going on, and frankly, that suggests that if they're willing to go so far as to get a warrant, who knows how far they're willing to go to try to back that warrant up. Culpepper ruled the probable cause supporting the search warrant had been valid. I think these facts uh, offer a very reasonable inference and something would warrant a person of reasonable caution in finding probable cause to believe that Joshua Powell, the subject of the investigation, was involved in the disappearance and very likely the death of Susan Powell. Alina did not like that at all. I empathize with his decision because he has to base it only on the four corners of the affidavit. I understand that. Uh, however, there is exculpatory evidence that was not put into the affidavit, so I actually disagree with the, the overall concept on that point. While Alina was arguing on behalf of her father, West Valley police were obtaining a subpoena for her AAA records. They learned all about the stop she and Michael had made in Baker City and their long tow to Pendleton. Detectives identified the tow driver and went to interview him. The tow driver, who declined to be interviewed for this podcast, told Ellis Maxwell Michael hadn't said much during that long drive. Steve Powell's trial began the second week of May. This morning, Powell waved and smiled at his daughter Alina, who sat in the back of the courtroom. Denise Cox was there too. She says she'll attend the trial with the hope that Powell will end his silence. The journals are helping with the voice of Susan and, the, and it links to how sick of a person he is. Cox wants the jury to see excerpts from Powell's journals, which talk about his obsession with Susan. Prosecutors say the writings show a pattern of voyeurism. Powell's attorneys say the journal entries aren't relevant to the case. Judge Culpepper issued a ruling excluding from evidence Steve's voyeur photos of Susan, as well as seven of eight passages from Steve's journals. His decision is a blow to the state. Susan Powell's sister wasn't happy. She left the courthouse without talking to reporters. The seven excluded excerpts all had to do with Susan, like this one. I am a voyeur, and Susan is an exhibitionist. I like having the camcorder on all the time when she's around because I want to record every possible move she makes and every inch of skin she reveals to my lustful eyes. The one passage Culpepper did allow said this. I enjoy taking video shots of pretty girls in shorts and skirts, beautiful women of every age. In another blow to the prosecution, Culpepper tossed out the child pornography charge. His reasoning was Steve hadn't directed those young neighbor girls to pose or act in an explicit fashion. The charge, he said, did not fit with the language of Washington's criminal statute. 
So deputy prosecutors Grant Blinn and Bryce Nelson had to make the case mostly on the images of those two neighbor girls. They showed the girls nude, taking a bath, using the bathroom, or changing clothes. The images repeatedly zoomed in on the genital area of the two girls. A detective with the Pierce County Sheriff's Office drew a picture of Powell's home, which is next to the victim's house. He also described the pictures of the girls as they were shown to the jury. He says there were so many pictures, he recognized the girls when he went to talk to their mother about them. I got out of my vehicle and I immediately recognized victim number one, and then I could tell victim number two. Steve's attorneys, Mark Quigley and Travis Curry, staged the best defense they could all things considered. It's not about what you feel. It's about what you know. Stephen Powell's attorney told the jury to take away the emotion and decide the case based on the evidence. Evidence, they said, is lacking. Travis Curry said there's no proof Powell took the photos or that he did it for sexual gratification. There are people who are nosy, who like to spy on their neighbors. He said the thousands of pictures of other girls on the disc support that theory. If somebody liked to look at pictures of naked prepubescent girls, wouldn't there be lots of pictures of naked prepubescent girls? What is the defense? There are no more naked kids on the disc? That's the defense? Really? Prosecutors fired back, saying the evidence speaks for itself. They said the images were tied to a video camera found in Powell's bedroom. The disc also contained pictures of Powell naked, urinating, and performing sex acts on himself. That speaks volumes to you as to who it was that filmed the girls in this case. On May 16th of 2012, the jury returned its verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty, guilty, guilty. On all 14 counts. Steve didn't so much as flinch. Detective Sergeant Gary Sanders, who you just heard testifying on the stand during the trial, was not surprised. Kind of interesting in the element that he, he would, you know, found guilty. Didn't take much for that. I think the, the judge at that time called him the ultimate creepy neighbor. And that's what it was. He just videotaped everybody. Ellis Maxwell had also taken the stand to explain how police knew the pictures came from Steve's camcorder. The legal wrangling in the voyeurism case only underlined how messy he would have made a murder trial against Josh. He is an individual that you, you would have to prove or disprove his involvement in this particular case. If you did not, then you myself up on the stand, you know, sure wish I had that opportunity with Josh, but that was the goal. I would have been torn apart by a defense attorney because they easily could have pointed the figure at Steve and used him as a scapegoat, for sure. Judge Culpepper had kept Susan's name out of the trial, but that didn't stop her family from declaring victory. Susan's family says it's justice for the two young girls, justice for Susan too. Oh, in the end, my sister is vindicated on all the accusations he had of, against her about being promiscuous and being sexual. Denise Cox says Powell got what he deserved. Steve's youngest child, Alina, saw it differently. My family was automatically convicted two and a half years ago. Alina followed the trial closely, sitting in the back and taking notes. After the verdict, she sat inside the courtroom crying. She talked about her loss in what she called a complicated situation even she doesn't understand. I've lost a sister-in-law, a, a sister, a brother, two darling nephews, and a great father. 
After the verdict, Alina launched a website titled West Valley and Pierce County Malfeasance. She claimed the criminal investigation had amounted to illegitimate harassment of her family and abuse of authority. She also said police had misrepresented Susan's writings in bad faith, and that Susan had felt perfectly comfortable around Steve. Social worker Elizabeth Griffin Hall's frustrated call to dispatch on the day Josh killed the boys ignited a firestorm of criticism when the Pierce County Law Enforcement Support Agency released the recording to the media. The agency reprimanded communications officer David Lovrack, who'd handled that call. The letter of reprimand to Lovrack notes quite a bit of confusion on your part and said there appeared to be many red flags that were stated by the caller. Lovrack's supervisor wrote in the letter that he should have asked certain questions to clarify the situation instead of making assumptions and not listening carefully. Shortly after the tragedy, Lovrack expressed his personal regret on NBC Dateline. Lovrack, I should note, owned up to his role in the tragedy. He now works to train other dispatchers about what he calls compassion fatigue. Charlie and Braden's deaths also triggered an inquest at the Washington Department of Social and Health Services. DSHS convened a review board. There's a law that says everything becomes transparent. And in fact, I believe there was a web page dedicated to this and all the discovery, which means the notes, the emails, my report, all the stuff was on the the web for everybody to see. James Manley, the forensic psychologist who had evaluated Josh's parenting skills and recommended the psychosexual evaluation, was himself working through what had happened. I think profoundly was my conclusion And coincidentally, the last telephonic message to his attorney is that he could not live without his children. That said, when he was apparently faced with a psychosexual evaluation, he did not know what to do, and he could not even think about living without his sons. So he decided to end their lives. The review board declined to say if the police, courts, or social workers could have prevented the murders of Charlie and Braden. The board did suggest a lack of domestic violence training and complex jurisdictional issues between Utah and Washington had contributed. They just were trying to stay away from the media, stay away from stuff, and trying to get rid of this as fast as they could, regardless of what was safe for the boys or the right thing for the children. So they didn't have the children's best interest in mind. They had their self-interest in mind. The board did not agree with that assessment from Chuck Cox, saying instead the social workers had demonstrated the highest concern for the children's health, safety, and welfare. But the board also said that in future dependency actions involving a parent who is under criminal investigation, social workers ought to consult with case detectives before making any changes to visitation. The DSHS files included all of the emails and reports authored by the social workers. Chuck couldn't believe what he read. He made up his mind. He was going to sue DSHS and the social workers. And that's why we went ahead when I found out about their emails between the force and her boss and the social worker was investigating and all that stuff that went on. I went, okay, no, no, we're going after all of them. I've made multiple attempts to contact the social workers who handled the Powell case and get their perspectives. Those overtures have all gone unanswered. 
I went so far as to submit written questions to Washington's Department of Children, Youth, and Families in 2018. I received no response. Chuck had obtained a copy of Stephen Terry's divorce papers shortly before the murder-suicide. He found himself stunned over what the social workers had known about Josh's past. Well, I didn't know much about Josh until I read his divorce proceedings of his parents. That was like, oh my gosh, what are we dealing with here? But after reading that, I'm going, wow, this guy was raised with no rules. He's always right. Nobody's ever challenged him. And when he is challenged, yeah, it kind of made some more sense of what was going on in the, the family. For the first time, Chuck could see a direct link between how Steve had treated Teresa and how Josh had treated Susan. Matter of fact, if you look at the divorce proceedings from Steve's things, the same words Steve was using against Terry, he was using against Susan. The exact same words. It brought into sharp relief Josh and Susan's decision to move away from Puyallup a decade earlier when they'd taken that job managing a retirement center in Yakima. They moved away to get away from dad. And Josh knew that was to get away from his dad, and he was fine with that. And for a while, it was seen to be working better. Chuck also found himself busy during the summer of 2012 trying to make sense of the financial mess Josh had left behind. He asked Bank of America for a statement on the mortgage for the Sarah Circle house. To his surprise, he learned Josh had taken his name off the mortgage before the murder-suicide, leaving Susan's alone. Not only that, but Josh had also listed Susan's mailing address as the Orchard Park Retirement Center in Yakima, where they'd lived in 2003 before moving to Utah. Chuck couldn't figure out why Josh would have picked that address. Then he remembered something. Josh once had keys to the facility, he knew the schedule, and had kept personal items in an unfinished storage area. Chuck asked the current property managers if he could take a look around, and they agreed. Chuck went through the storage area that was framed but not finished. Black plastic sheets covered the dirt floor. Scattered pieces of drywall were nailed to some studs. In a back corner, he came across a piece of soft earth. His imagination started to work. He wondered if Josh might have dismembered Susan, placed the pieces of her body into plastic bags, then buried them beneath what would someday become a concrete floor. Chuck emailed this theory to West Valley Police. Ellis Maxwell, in turn, got in touch with the Yakima County Sheriff's Office. They sent a cadaver dog over to search the Orchard Park storage area, but found nothing out of the ordinary. Back after this. In June of 2012, Steve Powell received a sentence of 30 months confinement. He left the Pierce County Jail and headed to prison in Shelton, Washington. No sooner had he arrived than his glasses broke. He was so desperate to read and write that he fashioned a makeshift monocle out of a clear packet of toothpaste. Steve started to work on a novel, a piece of what he called historical fiction. I have almost 150 handwritten pages so far. Since it is about Joseph Smith and Mormon history, I have a lot of details at my command, even though I have no reference works. Steve hoarded paper, writing on any free scrap he could collect. He kept Michael and Alina apprised of his progress in frequent letters, 
like this one dated July 29, 2012. When you have all the time in the world and can't see much, you do a lot of thinking. And that's why I got going on a novel. So f*** them. They treat me like an animal in a cage, and I evolve my other faculties and become superhuman. A couple of days later, Steve wrote a personal log about a visit from FBI Special Agent Sonia Nordstrom and a man from the Department of Defense named Seamus. Seamus said he believes Michael knows something but won't talk. He made veiled threats related to the funding of Michael's Ph.D. program. He sort of described Alina as a crackpot with her laughable website and theories. I am worried they will try to do something to harass my kids more, since I unfortunately allowed them to see that as my hot button. This guy, Seamus, he wasn't from the Department of Defense. He was police detective Daryl Dane. Dane later wrote that Steve had gone into a rage when he had touched on the topic of Alina and demanded to be returned to his cell. Seamus also told Steve that Michael might go on a rampage, just like James Holmes. Days earlier, Holmes had carried out a mass shooting at a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, killing 12 people. Prior to the shooting, Holmes had studied neuroscience, not all that different from Michael's work in the field of cognitive science. In August, Steve transferred from Shelton to the Twin Rivers unit at the Monroe Correctional Complex. Like Chuck, Steve started to think about suing over the deaths of his grandsons. He wrote a draft of a wrongful death lawsuit by hand. It sought $20 million for Josh and $10 million each for Charlie and Braden. The agencies I will file claims against include, but are not limited to the following. 1. West Valley City, Utah and its police department. 2. Pierce County, Washington and its sheriff's department. 3. Washington State Attorney General's Office and DSHS. 4. Federal Bureau of Investigation. 5. The U.S. Marshals Service. In a letter to Alina, Steve explained he was also appealing his conviction. I don't think the majority of people see this as anything other than a smear campaign against me. It will eventually bite these agencies in the ass, big time. Prison life did have its moments of humor, though. Steve told Alina he'd become somewhat famous. A whole gang of Mexicans came in a week or two ago. The other day on my way to the yard, I, I think it was one of these homies who yelled at me, Where's Sarah Palin? Apparently, he confused her with Susan Powell. Steve granted Alina power of attorney and tasked her with taking care of his home and finances. Alina drew out her father's savings and maxed her credit card in order to pay the mortgage. Michael stayed in touch with his dad, but kept his physical distance. He remained in Minneapolis. West Valley detectives hadn't given up the chase. They used federal subpoenas to get Michael's financial and phone records. They obtained court permission to monitor his internet traffic. And in August of 2012, they found that email exchange he'd had with Apollo Mapping the prior December. Detective Daryl Dane immediately reached out to Katie Nelson, one of Apollo's co-owners. He called me and wanted to discuss my interaction with Powell and to see if I could sort of try and figure out exactly what he was looking for. 
Uh, he'd be more specific about what he was looking for. Katie has never publicly shared her part in the story. No, you were the first person who's ever contacted me about it. Really? Yeah. Wow. I know. <laughs> that kind of surprises me. At the time in 2012, Katie wasn't too familiar with the Susan Powell case. You know, I hadn't really paid that much attention to the original incident other than hearing about it and thinking, well, that's terrible. And that was about it. So I kind of was like jumped into the middle of something without understanding really what was going on and why it was important and sort of what he was trying to accomplish with this imagery. Michael's request for a satellite image of Pendleton, Oregon the prior December hadn't struck her as odd. When he contacted me, I just thought he was just a normal guy and there's nothing weird about our interaction. But of course, she had no way of knowing then just what Pendleton meant to Michael. We get people looking at crop circles. We get totally crazy people looking for aliens or a red ball over Houston. Um, you know, we get just all kinds of nutters. But then this one is, is not, it's not like that, but it does definitely falls in the category of a strange thing to happen to you. Detective Dane had an idea. He wanted Katie to call Michael back and tell him new imagery had come available. And in this case, I was like, I hope I can help you. I hope I can give you more information and get something out of him, but also going into it knowing that that might not happen. So it's like it's like a sort of pressure um, where, you, you know, you're probably going to kind of fail. And it was very cloak and dagger, except for Dane was a super nice guy. Daryl traveled to Boulder, Colorado, and met with Katie on September 4th of 2012. He rolled tape as she called Michael. Hello? Hi, is this Michael? Yeah. Hey, Michael, this is Katie calling from Apollo Mapping. You had contacted me a couple of months ago about some satellite imagery. Yeah. Yeah, and you had wanted to know if there was anything more recent whenever we got something in of your area. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, we just um, we got something just uh, about a month or two ago from June of the area you were interested in. Um, Pendleton, Oregon. Yeah, in, of Pendleton, uh, the same area. And I was wondering if you would still be interested in that. Michael hesitated. Katie tried to keep him on the hook. Um, do you have a flat long coordinate or a shape file or a KML of, this, of a specific area you're interested in or of a smaller polygon so I can see if it covers what you're really interested in? Um, I couldn't give you a lot long, but I could give you uh, about the name of the establishment. I don't know if you go that way. Yeah, yeah I can do that too. Give me one second. Get something to write it down on. Uh, what is the name of it? It should be like Lindell's. Uh, <clears throat> Lindell's Junk. Katie told Michael she would look up the coordinates and see if the satellite image covered the Lindell Auto lot. Okay, all right, feel free to call me back and I will let you know if this covers that area. Okay, okay thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Bye. Daryl told Katie Lindell Auto is where West Valley Police had found Michael's car one year before. And it felt odd to be a part of something that was rather nefarious. And, um, yeah, I was just, it's just kind of one of those moments where you feel like someone's walked over your grave and you're like, oh, that's uncomfortable. <laughs> Michael called Katie back the next day and told her he would like to buy the new satellite image. It's interesting, too, because I generally try to dissuade people from getting imagery who are looking for something like cars. And he was rather insistent that it was 
fine that he knew the limitations of the imagery and, and being able to identify a car but still wanted the imagery if we had anything. Katie informed Michael the picture she had didn't show the whole Lindell lot, just a piece. He didn't care about that. He just wanted anything that we had. She offered to have a satellite tasked to take a new picture, a job that would cost about $2,500. Rather surprising that someone wants to spend that kind of money, but in his desperation, you pay a lot for the security of knowing that people don't know your secret which I think was what that was worth to him. Ann Bremner, one of the Cox family's lawyers, had a lot of work to do during the fall of 2012. She wanted the West Valley Police case file. West Valley Police refused to hand it over. So, on August 22nd of 2012 and took her case to the city council. Bremner says the information would help resolve an ongoing life insurance policy dispute with the Powell family. But the legal advisor for West Valley City Police argued the investigation isn't over. He says work was done on the case this week. It's the position of the West Valley City Police Department. Any release of these documents would jeopardize the investigation. It's that black and white for us. The council also refused the request. At the same time, Anne and her team were doing the groundwork for Chuck Cox's lawsuit against DSHS. She and the firm she worked with, Freybuck, were involved as well in the ongoing legal action over the life insurance. Josh Powell had taken out $3.5 million in life insurance on Susan and on the boys. And then once she went missing, he changed the beneficiary um, in it to his brother Michael. Anne used the life insurance case to her advantage. I went to New York and deposed their agent from New York Life. And I'm just like, what were you, think? what were you thinking? I mean, what are you, what are you thinking? And also deposed Terry, Alina, and Michael. Do you swear on the phone to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes, I do. The federal court compelled him to travel from Minneapolis to Tacoma to face questions on October 20th of 2012. Mr. Powell, are, are you armed in any way today? Objection, no. counsel. Look. There is no basis for this type of questioning. You're attempting to harass and humiliate and embarrass my client. I had asked for police personnel to accompany us because of some concerns, pretty specific things, information I had about Michael. Next question is, would you be willing to be patted down? Um, in Counsel, that's enough. That's enough. Really, this is silly. The deposition was recorded. That video has never been made public before now. They went through Michael's life, his education, his time in the Army, his relationships with his siblings, and he fidgeted a bit with the cable for a lapel microphone as Anne asked him about his phone calls and emails with his brother Josh. Did you ever communicate with um, Josh via email? Um, a little bit. And under what circumstances? Um... He, uh, sometimes we emailed back and forth, uh, sometimes he was writing court declarations and, uh, uh asked me to proofread them. Court declarations uh, for what? Uh, regarding the kids, for example. Why would he ask you to proofread him, do you think? Uh, because I'm in a PhD program, I guess. Michael didn't mention the encrypted emails about Susan 
which West Valley police had heard Josh and Michael discussing on the wiretap a year earlier. And any other emails with Josh? Um, well, he sent a couple, I was CC'd on a couple of emails before he died. And who was he sending emails to where he CC'd you? He sent them to Alina. And what were they about? Um, uh, one of them was a, uh, one of, uh, uh, one of them was, was uh, a note that... Yeah, okay. Let's take a minute. It seemed Josh's suicide was the only topic that elicited an emotional response. He wasn't nervous. He wasn't empathetic with Susan's family. Were you on Facebook? Or have you been at any time? Um, I have been, but I almost never use Facebook. Is your page still up? It is. And is it under Michael Powell or a different name? Um, I'm, I'm not sure because, it, it, I mean, it's under Michael Powell, but I'm not sure, you know, the middle initial or, or anything like that. That was a lie. During Operation Tsunami, police overheard a phone conversation between Michael and Josh in which Michael provided his brother with a login and password for a fake Facebook account created under the name Molly Hunt. Molly's account came into being on the night of June 6th of 2010. Her birthday displayed as January 20th, the same as Josh's. Molly immediately joined Kiersey Hallowell's Friends and Family of Susan Powell Facebook group, as well as a closed group titled Where is Susan Powell? On the wiretap 14 months later, police heard the brothers talking about using the Molly account to secretly monitor discussions in those groups about the police search in Ely, Nevada. I recently gained access to the Molly Hunt account. I downloaded activity logs complete with IP addresses. They revealed that on the day of the Ely search, someone using an IP address in Minneapolis made several failed attempts to log in to Molly's account before succeeding and changing the password. That would have been Michael. 20 minutes later, someone using an IP address belonging to the ISP Rainier Connect in Washington State also logged in using that new password. Rainier Connect provided internet service to Steve Powell's home, where Josh was living at the time. Michael did not disclose any of this. Where was Josh when Susan disappeared, if you know? I don't know. Where was Josh in the week after her disappearance, if you know? I don't know. Most of the rest of the logins on the Molly Hunt account traced back to an IP address at the University of Minnesota, where Michael was studying cognitive science. The last activity on Molly's account came on January 20th of 2012, exactly two weeks before Josh murdered Charlie Ann Braden. Michael was so smart that he was very hard to depose because he was ahead of me the whole time, and he was very good at not giving me responses. Michael described being at his dad's house on December 7th of 2009 when Josh, Susan, and the boys first turned up missing, then learning of Josh's return from a 
camping trip. Did he ever say he was going to take that trip at midnight when it was snowing with the no. two-year-old and four-year-old? No. Was your dad around Josh during that time, the weeks before Susan disappeared? Was your dad in Utah? No. Michael said he didn't personally talk to his brother until a few days later. Josh called me, um, and he was upset. He was in tears. Um, He uh, was taking care of two little kids, and he said that he just needed help taking care of his kids. And um, I uh, got on the road and went down there. He didn't mention his stop in Pendleton on the way back home until Anne asked just the right question. Did you sell any cars at that time? Um, at, at what time again? Um, with, let's say within the six months after Susan's disappearance. Um, I did uh, sell a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, my car broke down on the way back from uh, Utah, and that was the 97 Ford Taurus. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> so when it broke down, um, it didn't seem like we were going to be able to get it back to Washington. And uh, I uh, sold it for $100 to a salvage lot in Pendleton, Oregon. At that point, it wasn't public knowledge that police had the car or that a cadaver dog had indicated on the trunk. Only a couple of weeks after ditching the car, Michael had made that long drive between Puyallup and West Valley with Josh in the U-Haul. They had had plenty of time to talk. Did you ever talk to Josh about his potential involvement in Susan, or role in Susan's disappearance? I didn't. Did anyone in your family? I don't know. They may have. Michael did not volunteer that he had debriefed Josh after his interviews with police, as Steve had told the FBI. Do you think Susan's dead or alive? I don't know. You don't have an opinion? No. What is your belief about Josh's role in Susan's disappearance or death? I don't believe that he was involved. Okay, why not? He never gave any indication that he could have been involved. He just didn't act like it. Um, In the months following her her disappearance, um, he just acted like a pretty concerned husband. Did you have any role in Susan's disappearance? No, I did not. Here, Michael averted his eyes. His eyes were like black coal. You looked in his eyes and there was nothing there. He had a lot of Josh's mannerisms. He looked kind of like Josh, but that complete black, flat, coal eyes. You know, I, could, I, couldn't even, I couldn't even look at him. Ann questioned Michael about the For the Kids website. He asked me to write something about the incident in the Who's Cox's he? house. Uh, Josh did. Okay. And I started an, an essay for him. Okay. Did you? And put it? I sent okay. it to him, and uh, the family was uh, putting together. Oh, I uh, see. For the kids' website. Do you think he's somebody, Alina, or he posted your essay on the website? Uh, I I believe so. But Michael denied making the specific accusations in that essay. He told Anne that he'd been on the phone with Alina on the day Josh killed himself and the boys as Alina went over to the burning house. She said as she drove up, uh, that the house just wasn't there anymore. And she was mostly hysterical. And she was saying that 
It looked as if it had been blown up or something. So I didn't know if it was maybe natural gas or... Uh. Stop, Mike. Get it done. Let's get it done. Michael had also spent time on the phone with Jim Vocek, a producer for the ABC TV program Good Morning America. He told me that uh, there were uh, some developments coming out through the media and that they had found uh, the body of an adult and, 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 and two smaller bodies. And did Elena go on Good Morning America and talk about it? Yes. And did she say basically that Josh was driven to what he did by the media and the Coxes? I don't know. Michael explained he didn't watch TV or read any news articles. He seemed to doubt Josh had actually murdered the boys. Do you have reason to believe that somebody else killed those kids? No, I don't know. I... And just, do you think that Josh did not kill the kids? It was so out of character with everything that I had ever known about him that I just spent a long time not believing it. Did you learn the kids had chop marks from hatchets? A hatchet, I should say. I heard rumors. And that he said, as they came into the house, I have a surprise for you before everything else happened. to the form. I didn't hear, I didn't hear that. The deposition had started around 8 a.m. Anne asked her final question after 3 p.m. So what would you do with the money if you got it? Object to the form. I'll let's try it. It's irrelevant. I'll let's try it. West Valley Police obtained a transcript of Michael's deposition and added it to their case file. I asked Ellis if West Valley Police gained anything from it. I don't believe so. I honestly, like, I don't even remember what he said in his deposition. He said very little. And so, but yeah, I don't, I don't believe anything they say. A bitter wind blew in Minneapolis. Michael Powell showed up at the University of Minnesota just before noon. He wasn't enrolled in any formal classes that semester, just independent study, and had only gone to campus to move some personal stuff out of the VA lab where he worked. At about 1 p.m., he pulled his car out of the Church Street garage and started for home. A dusting of fresh snow sat atop the congealed gray slush lining the streets. He drove west over the Mississippi River to 431 South 7th Street. Michael's blue Hyundai Sonata rolled to a stop in a space on the fifth floor of the parking structure. He stepped out into the cold, took a drag on a cigarette, then turned to look over the edge of the concrete wall. When he'd finished the smoke, he tossed the butt on the ground 
and went inside. Here he is, is uh, what was he, a PhD candidate at the university? So that in of itself is a lot of stress. Just before 2.30, Michael rode the elevator back to the garage. He did not go to the fifth floor. He went to the seventh, the top level. Now you put all this on there, on top of that. You know, his brother killing himself and murdering his kids and, and then having some knowledge of what took place. Again, Michael lit a cigarette and walked up to the concrete half wall. Now the police are kind of targeting in on him for, you know, some answers, hoping that he can give us some direction to recover Susan. It was February 11th of 2013. The court fight over Josh's life insurance was not going well. Chuck Cox, Michael had recently learned, had been named conservator of Susan's estate. I think it was just too much. Michael stood for a long while, the sting of the cold breeze on his face. Then he climbed to the top of that half wall and launched himself, arms wide, into the frigid air. I think it was just too much, and that's what led him to, you know, doing a swan dive there in downtown Minneapolis. Minneapolis police responding to witness accounts of the suicide located his driver's license and an ID card for the Minneapolis VA Medical Center Brain Science Center in his pocket. They called in the medical examiner who entered Michael's condo looking for a suicide note. He hadn't written one. The ME found Michael's emergency contact information. He had listed his mom, Teresa. Notifying Steve proved a bit more difficult. The ME called the Washington Department of Corrections and was passed to the supervisor of the Twin Rivers unit where Steve was incarcerated. The supervisor called Steve in and told him what Michael had done while the Minneapolis ME listened on speakerphone. Steve said, oh my God, oh my God, but otherwise showed no emotion. The medical examiner asked if Michael had ever dealt with depression or addiction. Steve said no. Then Steve said he'd kept in touch with Michael by phone almost every week. He had never so much as hinted that he was considering suicide. But Steve also admitted they hadn't been candid on the phone because they knew their calls were monitored. Jennifer learned of Michael's suicide from her mom. She called Ellis. I never thought that he was involved deeply with Josh. I assumed that he would have some information that Josh shared with him. West Valley police arrived in Minneapolis two days later. They went to the University of Minnesota to speak with Michael's colleagues. None had noticed anything unusual. On February 15th, Ellis, along with detectives Gavin Cook and Daryl Dane, served federal search warrants on Michael's car and condo. They didn't find anything all that useful. Yeah, I was hopeful that maybe you know, we'd find a, a USB drive or something on his computer or even something in writing because Josh wrote a little bit, Steve wrote a lot, so, and with Michael being in school, I was kind of hoping maybe he'd write too, but yeah, nothing was discovered to help us find her, give us any information as to what Josh may have shared with Michael. Over the years, Jennifer's come to believe Michael helped Josh hide Susan's body after the murder, but whatever he knew. Went to the grave. He took with him. Mm Mm-hmm. Ellis 
is not so sure. So hypothetically, Josh, you know, dumps Susan's body somewhere just and then goes back, picks it up and decides he's going to go to the Pacific Northwest and does an exchange with Michael Powell, his brother, or Stephen Powell, his dad. It's pretty risky. This theory has persisted, and I'll admit it's pretty compelling, given all we've learned about Josh and Michael's conversations on the wiretap, their encrypted emails, and the cadaver dog hitting on the trunk of Michael's car. I know there's some of my peers out there to believe that that's a very probable, uh, especially, obviously, after we located Michael's car. But uh, I just, I don't know about that. I have less weight in all of that. If Michael Powell was involved in Susan's disappearance or knew about it, he did not bother to unburden his conscience before exiting the stage. On the next episode of Cold. Summer was a stripper, and she was just using him because he was just paying. Just give money, 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 money. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Cold. Toss us a rating or a review. You can find Cold on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Cold Podcast. For video clips, pictures from the case, and more, hit up thecoldpodcast.com. Also, If Susan's story sounds familiar in your own life, in other words, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse in any form, please get immediate help. In the U.S., support is a phone call away at the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or online at www.thehotline.org. A quick thank you to the team. Kristen Sorensen, Eric Openshaw, Ken Fall, Danielle Prager, Kira Faramond, Becky Bruce, Josh Tilton, Adam Mason, Jillian Friedman, and especially Cheryl Worsley. The music for Cold was composed by Michael Bonmiller, except for the guitar stuff. That was me. Cold is a KSL podcast. Thank you for listening.